Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the seminar series. So today we've got Helen Barrett from the Queensland University of Technology. Helen's a senior research fellow at QUT in the School of Justice, or Centre for Justice, and is also an ALC DECRA fellow as well. And you can see the title up there for the talk. So we're talking about youth leadership and peacemaking, inclusive peace. Helen's obviously well-known, established authority in this particular area, especially in the area of youth leadership in peace building. So it's really good to be able to have Helen here to talk a little bit about the work that she's been doing. So over to you. Hello everyone, thank you for coming along and sitting in a room with a mask on. It's actually really nice to be with people. I was talking to Ian about this before about it's actually nice to be with people in a room talking about research after the last year or so as well. I just wanted to start also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands that we're on today and the lands that I live in work on, the Turrbal and Yagara people, pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, recognise that these are lands where sovereignty was never ceded and I'm grateful to live and work here. As Ian said, I'm currently an ARC DECRA fellow and the project that I'm working on for my DECRA is interested in youth leadership in the context of an emergent international agenda for youth inclusion in peace and security. And this is known as the Youth Peace and Security or the YPS agenda that was formalised in 2015 through a UN Security Council resolution and things have happened since, some of which I will discuss. Prior to my DECRA, I was working in this space of youth and peace building broadly, thinking about young people's everyday encounters and actions for peace. My work previously has been particularly focused in Latin America. In an ideal world without COVID, my DECRA would also have allowed me to travel to the Philippines and Sri Lanka. But as we are all pivoting in the last year or so, things have shifted a little bit. So one of the things I have been doing in the last year in particular is spending a lot of time, as we all have, in Zoom meetings of activists, advocates, networks and things that are involved in getting this agenda established and working for youth inclusion in the kind of formal peace and security space. I'm currently in the middle of undertaking interviews about to release a survey for youth peace builders. So this that I'm talking about today is very much in the middle of, of a project. Um, and when I said that to Ian, he said that was fine. Um, work in progress is very welcome. So this is work in progress. The other thing that I'm drawing on today for this talk is a collaborative project that I have been co-running with Dr. Caitlin Mollica, who's also now at QT, but was here. And we've been working with three youth researchers, Savannah Spaulding, Casey J. Ogger Jules and Hayley Payne, who are based here in Brisbane, on a project that has been supported by the International Peacebuilding NGO Search for Common Ground. And this project's been undertaking remote interviews with youth peacebuilders about youth inclusion in formal peace processes and their exclusion in those spaces as well in South Sudan, in Myanmar, and in Afghanistan. So this project was designed as a youth-led, adult-supported project, and we're working to centre young people as research leaders as well as young people's perspectives on peace in this process. In the second half of the talk, particularly when I'm quoting from this research, it is the work that has been done by the young people that are part of this project as well, Savannah, Casey and Haley. It's been a pretty great project. It also has been confronting and had to 
be changed. As the military coup in Myanmar occurred the week we started doing interviews, and obviously in the last couple of weeks we've been negotiating what's been going on in Afghanistan for the young people that we were talking to as well. So as I said, very much a work in progress. A lot of my work has previously been at an international level, but I'm thinking about the implications of these kinds of questions, particularly in a regional context. One of the things that often gets overlooked is the corner of the world we're interested in and that the centre is interested in holds almost half the world's young people. So it's a young region which holds both potential but also raises questions about how youth are included in processes. I'm particularly interested in peace and security but I think that that's a more pertinent question for people kind of more broadly about where the youth are when we're looking at politics and social change in the region as well. So what I want to talk about today, as I say, in the middle of this project, having done this work at the international level, having been working on this project with the research group including the young researchers, is around ideas of inclusion and participation of youth in these contexts. So I want to start a little bit at the kind of conceptual and then international level and then, as I said, particularly draw on some of the research that's come out of this project I've been working with, particularly maybe of interest to those in this room for Afghanistan and Myanmar in particular as well. I've spent a lot of time thinking about young people and I'm conscious that others may not have, particularly in places that are are focused on kind of politics. Often young people get overlooked and excluded, but I think that actually this overlooking and exclusion is the context in which young people are engaged. So that existing normative context reflects deeply embedded and problematic assumptions about young people and that these constructions are constructed um, externally to youth themselves. They're constructed about young people and the way that we understand them. Just for some visuals while I talk, these kinds of images are obviously the stereotype of the images that we see and that we often understand when we're talking about young people, when we start talking about peace and security. So formal definitions of youth have varied. They've been codified in different ways. The UN defines them as 15 to 24, but the UN Youth Peace Security Agenda defines youth as 18 to 29. The African Charter defines them as 15 to 35. National governments define them differently. I'm not particularly interested in the age-bound definition of youth because I think it actually limits us in understanding what is a social construct and a time of life that we're talking about. So regardless of those kind of definitional variances, there are a lot of young people in the world, but I don't think that's sufficient to talk about why we should care about young people. The impact of conflict and insecurity is disproportionately felt by young people around the world. One in four people under the age of 25 have been affected by armed conflict, violence or displacement. Youth are particularly vulnerable in conflict, but they're also often perceived as a risk. They're often understood as potential disruptors to peace and security. And we see this most prevalently in discourses that talk about youth bulge and the youth bulge theory. That is a theory that argues that the presence of large youth populations, particularly young men, if we talk about the kinds of stereotypical images we see, makes violence more likely, and that this is particularly true if economic opportunities are not present. This simplistic narrative ignores the fact that a majority of countries with populations that would be seen as having a youth bulge actually aren't sites of civil conflict or have not recently been sites of civil conflict. So it's one of those stats that works when you pick the cases you want it to work for and ignore a bunch of others. But the idea and this term youth bulge has become really prevalent, particularly in kind of international foreign policy making discourses and has a really pernicious effect on the framing of youth. 
The other thing that happens is that these narratives erase the kind of multitude of intersecting complex factors that research has shown influences the likelihood of violence and conflict. So these are structural things, the lack of economic opportunity, lack of access to education, inequality, resource scarcity and poor governance. So when you actually look at the research that's talked to young people who participate in conflict and violence, they often would say they're not participating because they're inherently predisposed or even often because they're ideologically aligned, but simply because there are no good alternatives. And we've seen this in research with people coming out of demobilising, out of civil conflicts across Africa and Latin America. And we've seen it with some of the stuff about ISIS and also when it's paid attention to some of the stuff around the Taliban even, for example, as well, why young people are joining these groups. As I've argued previously in work with Siobhan McAvoy-Levy, it erases and denies the multiple experiences of youth, including as peace builders who negotiate complex systems of risk and oppression to act for peace at a whole bunch of different levels. The other thing that this does is elides the fact that a majority of young people don't participate and in fact, in violence, sorry, and in fact many of them find ways to contribute to build more peaceful and secure societies. In 2016, the youth-run United Network for Youth Peace Builders, You Know Why, and the adult-run NGO Search for Common Ground conducted a global survey of youth-led organisations. They spoke to over 400 organisations working on peace and security. It found that most of these organisations operate on budgets of under 5,000 US dollars a year and 96% of the young people who are involved are involved in a volunteer basis, which also isn't to say the other 4% are actually paid a living wage either. They're just paid something. And they work across a whole range of spaces. So the image on the screen is from the Missing Peace Independent Progress Study on YPS that kind of summarises some of those spaces. But we're talking about integrating youth into formal decision-making spaces, creating education and employment opportunities, violence prevention at community levels, training of young people, building networks between youth and non-youth organisations. Young people themselves have long pushed back against the deficit framing of youth in peace and conflict contexts and structural practices that position them as powerless and as lacking. They've been doing this for quite a while. They've been doing it all over the world. But one of the things that has changed in recent years is that these kinds of efforts have been to some extent massively enabled by the passage of a UN Security Council resolution that actually recognises some of this work. On December 9th, 2015, the United Nations Security Council, which was at the time under the presidency of the Republic of Jordan, unanimously adopted Resolution 2250 on Youth, Peace and Security, or YPS. The adoption was unanimous, and it marked the culmination of a successful campaign by a coalition of actors, including adult-led and youth-led civil society organisations, as well as actors within the UN, to advocate for the importance of a resolution. I have talked to many of them and have a bunch of things that are really interesting about that process, but I'm putting it aside for this presentation, but happy to talk about the kind of process of the resolution if anyone is interested as well. For now, just to note that the resolution itself recognises the important and positive contribution of youth in efforts for the maintenance and promotion of international peace and security. So this is the formal Security Council kind of language and putting youth into that. And it's the first time that youth have been recognised in this way. The resolution also formalises a requirement for governments and other stakeholders to support young peace builders' work. It calls on member states to create mechanisms for young people's participation. And the resolution is, as these resolutions 
resolutions are, and anyone familiar with women, peace, security will, will see their resonances as well. Five key pillars for action. Participation, protection, prevention, partnerships, and the fifth is disengagement and reintegration. Sadly, it's not a P, otherwise that would be really right. four P's and a not P. It, it always bothers me, but anyway. <laughs> and it justifies its call for youth inclusion by noting and again, quoting that youth are a unique demographic dividend that can contribute to lasting peace and prosperity if there are inclusive policies implemented. And the term inclusive is used in the resolution there as well. So the passage of 2250 established an agenda that is now known as the Youth Peace and Security Agenda at the UN, and obviously this agenda is beyond as well. The rhetorical shift towards recognising the potential peace dividend, quote-unquote, of youth, has been evident in efforts to get to the resolution, but since then, as well as before. So, as I said, I wasn't going to talk in detail about getting to it, but I think it is worth noting that in the lead-up to the resolution, there was a global conference that was held in Amman. Yes, again, Jordan played a really key role in, in a bunch of this stuff, where they brought together a bunch of youth actors as well as other advocates who released the Amman Youth Declaration on Youth Peace and Security, which was used as leverage to get to the resolution. And interestingly, a bunch of the language actually translates into the resolution, which is uncommon as well, and that, that was positioned as a youth-led process too. Since 2015, there's been a whole range of attention. There are three UN Security Council resolutions, one in 2018, which is Resolution 2419, specifically on youth inclusion in peace processes, and I'll come back to that when I talk about some of the research, because we're particularly focusing on peace processes. And last year, a Resolution 2535 that really is about reinforcing and operationalising a bunch of the commitments that previously existed, calling for funding, calling for member states to actually do stuff. There's also now a requirement for a biannual report on youth peace security at the Security Council, which kind of institutionalises it in a way that it previously, in the first five years, hadn't. A whole lot of other kinds of things, other organisations, the EU, the AU, as well as ASEAN, have recognised, implemented, noted the agenda and brought it into their own policies and practice. Some countries have begun to establish national action plans following the format of the Women's Security Agenda as well, including, interestingly, the Philippines, which is perhaps not the first place you would think that would be implementing a youth peace and security national action plan, but there's some really interesting activity happening there. In work that I've done with Caitlin Mollica, we traced also how the establishment of the Youth Peace Security Agenda occurred alongside other moves at the UN around inclusive peace. This is where kind of thinking about what we mean by inclusion kind of really matters and starts to be drawn out. So at this institutional level, it's worth noting that the passage of 2250 occurred four months before the simultaneous General Assembly and Security Council resolutions on sustaining peace and the UN-wide agenda for sustaining peace, and also within months of the 15th anniversary of the Women, Peace, Security agenda. And again, it was kind of aligned with that as well. Caitlin and I, in a recent piece that was published by Cooperation and Conflict, talk about this as a space of mutually reinforcing legitimacy for more inclusive practices. So we are thinking about and understanding these as concurrent agendas for inclusive peace at the institutional level. So I kind of note this to say there are institutional processes and framings for how we think about inclusion before we get to the level of youth in particular.
One of the things that I mentioned before was the Amman Declaration, so before the passage of the resolution. And as I said, some of the language was picked up into the first resolution, into 2250. But I think what's really kind of worth noting and drawing out is this phrase, a couple of sentences in particular out of the Amman Youth Declaration, where they say, we young people are highly engaged in transforming conflict, countering violence and building peace, yet our efforts remain largely invisible, unrecognised and even undermined due to the lack of adequate participatory and inclusive mechanisms and opportunities to partner with decision-making bodies. And they implore decision-makers to develop meaningful mechanisms for youth participation and leadership at all levels. As my work's been demonstrating and some of the quotes I'll share in a moment also show, uh, mechanisms such as resolutions are not enough. And so kind of in this work and in these conversations I've been having with people, I've been thinking about what inclusion actually needs to consist of to be meaningful, which is the buzzword that keeps getting used, particularly in relation to youth peace and security. And there was a piece last year in Security Dialogue by Herblinger and Landau that argue that inclusion has become a buzzword. So yes, there's been all this great concurrent agendas, whatever, you know, where everyone's talking about inclusion in these ways, but what it actually means in terms of when it actually happens has been rendered quite empty almost by overuse. And Herblinger and Landau talk about the need for a relational approach to inclusion, and they say that a relational approach would aim to account for the complexity and intersectionality of actors, multiple identities, while paying attention to their potential strategic essentialization in peace processes. Importantly, relationality requires not thinking about the included as homogenous actor groups, but moving the focus to the space between actors, asking how their multiple relationships can be transformed through peacemaking. So this, uh, along with a bunch of other things, because that's how projects work, we sit with like 38 ideas in our head until they become an idea that you can articulate. This is one of the 38 ideas that I've been thinking with lately in terms of how we might think about inclusion. But I've also been thinking about this kind of academic kind of framing alongside the way in which young people themselves are talking about inclusion as well. And one of the things that really kind of echoes for me from this idea that Herblinger and Landau talk about is a conversation I had with one young peace builder who talked about the institutions, and he was talking about the UN, but also then talked about others, need reform. And everyone keeps talking about reform, but he's saying they don't actually need to be reformed, they need to be transformed. So I'm thinking about this kind of transformational approach that young people are calling for about their inclusion alongside what other forms of inclusion might look like as well. If we get to kind of this point of thinking about, well, here is the frameworks, there are resolutions, there's been formal recognition, the word inclusion keeps getting used, what does it actually mean when young people try and be included kind of in these contexts? Centering young people as knowledge bearers in their own right and as having expertise about their own experience poses a challenge to institutions that are often slow to recognise new sites of expertise, whether they be young people or others, and to kind of change their practices. This is definitely true of the youth peace security agenda as well. So Cecile Mazzucarati is the head of the Secretariat on Youth, Peace and Security at the UN. This is a secretariat jointly established by the UNFPA and UNPBSO. And she's also one of the three co-chairs of the Global Coalition on Youth, Peace and Security. The other two are an adult civil society rep and a representative of a youth peace building organisation. But Cecile was reflecting in a conversation with me on the agenda and she's talking about the discomfort that she feels is really productive about what the agenda might offer. So she says, 
there's a discussion on young people that everyone is comfortable having. It is young people need education, they need employment, and they should be empowered. I think all of us have heard those kind of phrases, right, be used about young people. Everyone's happy to have that discussion, Cecile says. The discussion that young people are leaders already and young women need space and opening up doors of power where important discussions are held is a discussion that a lot, and she emphasised a lot, of people are not comfortable with. So she says it's important to try and keep the political edge of the agenda. The agenda is not a nice conversation about how young people need our help. As I said, things that are floating around in my head as I've been doing this work, and I keep kind of coming back to that idea that Cecile is talking about here, about the political edge, the kind of critical focus of the agenda. And here's where we kind of start seeing these kinds of tensions and dilemmas in the inclusion of communities. And obviously I'm interested in youth, but these kind of discussions are happening in other spaces about the UN and beyond as well, including, for example, as we come to the 20th anniversary of the... Uh, sorry, as we pass the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace, Security agenda as well. As I said, one of the things that's really stood out in the conversations I've been having is around the idea of participation, around the assumptions and practices which permit and preclude certain young people from participating. And one of the kind of key critiques that is coming out is that institutionalising youth inclusion in political processes at any level is that it's underpinned by a neoliberal framing of youth that individualises their contribution, individualises their idea of participation as kind of a non-political act. Sua Kwon has been doing some amazing work where she's been attending global youth conferences of various kinds, including the Amman Youth Forum that I spoke about before. And in her work, she talks about how these spaces are presented as spaces where youth participation is necessary and it's an opportunity for young people to kind of enact their right to a global citizenship. So she describes how youth actively negotiated these global political spaces but were ultimately restricted by the structure and culture of engagement that's found at UN conferences. Unsurprisingly, she says, these global youth conferences were institutionalised spaces of power that offered young people limited opportunities for involvement in actual politics and they reinforced participation as a depoliticised practice of consent. I think there are politics also under here that guide the accepted presence of the good youth in these forums and kind of raise concerns about which youth are being brought in. This is something that young people said to me a lot, as well, sorry, not only young people, adults as well, in these conversations. One adult interviewee noted that he's been at these things for five years and 80% of the time it's the same people in the room having the same conversation, right? It tells you about the system. And a young man who was the regional coordinator for United Network of Youth Peace daughters for Western Central Africa was telling me that we need to go down to the trenches and meet the hard-to-reach youth, as he described them. We mustn't mistake that because someone can get to a conference or someone has a degree that they're representative of young people. So who's in the room in terms of who's been included, I think, is important as well. So if this is what's happening and like the contestation that's going on at the international level already, then the thing that is of real interest to me is where are the resonances or different issues that young people, quote-unquote, on the ground are having as well. Access, simply being in the room, as Altioch and Grisel frame it, in their global study of youth inclusion in peace processes, is often uncertain, it's difficult to achieve, and it's usually not available to everyone. Last year, the UN Secretary-General's report on youth peace and security kind of noted that their presence in the room doesn't actually guarantee that youth-specific needs will be addressed. And this was something that came out really strongly at the international conference. Again, and we can talk about how youth were included and participated in it in Helsinki in 2019 in relation to the launch of that report on youth participation in peace processes. And 
the young people in particular said, well, we have all these frameworks, but I still can't kind of get through the gate at the embassy, right, to talk to the person in the country that I'm in. You know, I have this piece of paper that says they should listen to me, but what good is it kind of on the ground? Really, we're trying to push particularly the UN reps in the room to kind of take them more seriously. Oh, have a meeting with me, he said. It's like, I can't get past the security guards at the gate of the embassy to talk to you kind of thing. In the last little bit, I want to turn particularly to the young people that we've been speaking to in this project. And they, in particular, are talking about the consequence of the exclusion. So if they can't actually get included in the first place, as a young man said from Afghanistan, youth have been forced to create their own room and develop their own strategies and go their own ways. In Myanmar, and I should note that these interviews were happening in kind of the month after the coup, we didn't do very many interviews because we stepped back entirely and we only spoke to those who were really insistent that they still wanted to talk to us kind of in the process. But they were talking about the formal peace process and noting that in the agreement or in any of the language, you never find a word that mentions youth, right? That it's not talked about at all kind of in these contexts. So while institutional discourses have normalised the inclusion of young people in these practices, implementing meaningful strategies remains a challenge at the local level. And there's a generational disconnect that goes some way to explaining the continued exclusion. So again, a woman in Myanmar notes that when youth activists do their work, when they try and advocate, the one thing they keep hearing is, you're still very young, you still have time, right? Like, you don't need to participate now, as they were saying. Similar conversations we had with young people in Afghanistan. A young woman there noted that authorities, the government, the elders, don't recognise that anything without youth is not for youth. And this kind of phrasing, nothing about us without us, which obviously started as a disability rights slogan, has been very much picked up by youth peace advocates as well. The other thing that's really central here when we talk about how young people are included and the reason why it's so hard and the thing that doesn't get named very often is that what we're really talking about is seeding of space and power by older generations and those in key decision-making structures in order to allow space for young people to be meaningfully, in quote marks, and we can talk about what that means, included. One young person said that most of the time it happens that you find young people's opinions are forgotten. He was saying that there's an assumption that, and I'm quoting a young man from South Sudan, we are the young leaders of tomorrow, but I think that has to stop because I believe, and everyone should believe, young people are the leaders of today. And this was a really reoccurring theme that came up when we were talking about this idea that young people couldn't help today because they were deferred in terms of their responsibility kind of into the future. These aren't mutually exclusive ideas, right? The young people can participate today and also be leaders in the future as well. Yet often inclusive peace-building discourses, even the best-intentioned ones in the youth peace-building space, really emphasise the future to the detriment of young people's contribution in the present. The other thing that I just want to highlight is who participates and who is able to participate. We notice this particularly in our conversations with young people in Afghanistan. And again, there's question marks over what everything looks like, but are noticeable in Afghanistan where pre-existing power structures dominated by the elite were replicated in the formal peace processes and that the young people who were there in very small numbers were actually the sons of older people who were there in particular. And I think that this quote from a young man in Afghanistan is really representative of broader conversations we had. He said, I want a representative who really represents me. I do not want the son of a traditional leader, the son of a god of war. He says, I call them god of war, whose fathers have been in the war for many years. I really want someone who has been migrant, who has been injured from war, who has lost his family. I want someone to understand what I'm saying, what I want as a youth in the peace negotiation.
In Myanmar, we also saw young people talk particularly about inequality in access to young people to be able to participate. So they're talking about, well, in Yangon they have a lot of workshops and training, but outside in rural areas they have to focus on survival. They have very little chance to participate in workshops and that there needs to be more focus on that. And the rural-urban came across in all three of the, the conversations. In echoes of discussions about the good youth who are allowed to participate at the international level as well, we also had several interesting conversations in Afghanistan about the need to include the Taliban youth in any kind of dialogue and peace discussion to hear their voice and account for their needs. And the young people are identifying that this appeal to real inclusion is of those who aren't just going to agree is the important thing. So the kind of voices of dissent. And the quote on the screen is just a young woman talking about the consequences of that exclusion. So the marginalised areas of the country, which include the young Taliban, are often excluded. They're more easily recruited. They don't have access to education. She also says, for example, when there are drone strikes in villages, they get a sense the government and the community, international community is against them. Right? So we see the kind of perpetuation of what an absence of attention to real inclusion might actually lead to. Before I wrap up this section and, and wrap up, I just also want to emphasise kind of one thing that I think is really important, which is to acknowledge that the work that young peace builders do faces many significant and serious obstacles, which include cultural and social barriers, lack of political will, lack of funding. These things are, are real and significant, but particularly the risk and insecurity that young people face in this work. It's dangerous to be a youth peace builder. In many of our conversations across all the countries we worked in, youth described the insecurity of their work. As I'm sure everyone in the room will know, the cost to young peace builders, young activists, their families since February 1st in Myanmar has been profound and significant. Even before the coup, youth often face violence for trying to be included in these processes. Even before the events of the last couple of weeks, young people in Afghanistan faced the targeted kinds of killings as well. And I've been thinking a lot about what young people in Afghanistan in particular kind of told us. We had one young man say, if the Taliban find us, they'll do their actions against us. Their actions are harsh. A lot of them, I mean, in the last week or so, they've taken down their Twitter, they've taken, like, the pages have disappeared, like, you can't, like, they've just erased the traces of the work they've done in terms of the threat they face. The image is Nova, which was a creation by the UN and the Protection Working Group of the Global Coalition on Youth, Peace and Security to share the stories of young peace builders in relation to a report that was released earlier this year called the If I Disappear Report, which is the global report on protecting young people in civic space. And the report documents that the challenges that we're talking about with young people in Afghanistan and Myanmar are not unique there, that these are challenges young people are facing around the world. So when we talk about inclusion, there's a process of political engagement and political will, but there's also these fundamental questions about safety and about ability to participate. And so I think that when we're talking about inclusion and kind of reoccurring across the conversations I've been having as well as the work we've been doing on this project is the centrality of not only what inclusion looks like in kind of a political sense and who participates, but how institutions, governments, civil society organisations more broadly can ensure that young people can participate safely as well. By way, I guess, of concluding, I think the establishment of an international formal agenda on youth peace security is obviously a momentous accomplishment. It attests to the commitment and dedication of many people, youth and adult. It recognises the work that young people have been doing for years before this, <laughs> before there was kind of formalised recognition. However, the process of bringing in youth to institutional processes and systems can function to depoliticise their agency. It can limit the scope of their inclusion. And it can also function to exclude those that systems and structures and those in power 
deem are not the quote-unquote good youth, right, who we want to participate. And I, as I said, have been returning to, and I'll return us to Cecile Mazzucarati's observation, right, that the agenda should not be a nice conversation about how young people need our help and that there is an urgency to ensuring that we don't lose sight of the political edge. As we've seen in Myanmar and Afghanistan alone these past months, despite an ongoing global pandemic, despite acute political crises, youth are actively building the worlds they want, contesting the limits of their participation and demanding more of the political institutions, civil society, actors and international community that say that they support them. I wanted to just end with a reflection from a young man from Afghanistan that our youth researcher Savannah Spaulding spoke to earlier this year. He says, the lack of inclusion today, unfortunately, causes youth to think twice about their inclusion in the peace process. Youth are forced to create their own room and develop their own strategies and go their own way. And that's not very effective overall because youth have the energy, the optimism and the capacity to engage. If the government can understand this and the international community can support this, they can be a catalyst of change. They can be change makers. And he said, that's important. And I'll leave it there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.